Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin this week with the coronavirus death toll in the U.S. standing at a staggering 40,000. To be precise, it's 40,931. This same time last week, the death toll was roughly 23,000. So that's roughly a doubling of the number of lives lost. A huge and horrific jump. There's a person behind every one of those numbers. A stark example of the tragedy. Sunday's edition of the Boston Globe printed 16 pages of death notices. Boston is among the cities being closely watched right now by the White House Coronavirus Task Force, along with Chicago and Philadelphia. This all comes as Dr. Anthony Fauci is once again warning the nation if restrictions are lifted too soon, the coronavirus could have a resurgence. But what you do if you jump the gun and go into a situation where you have a big spike, you're going to set yourself back. So as painful as it is to go by the careful guidelines of gradually phasing into a reopening, it's going to backfire. Despite these warnings and problems continuing to plague testing in the United States, Small groups of protesters representing just minority views on the matter have taken to demonstrating and possibly spreading the virus through those demonstrations throughout the country, encouraged in no small part by President Trump, even though, as Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland noted to me, it's the White House's own guidelines that the president is encouraging protests against. The president's policy says you can't start to reopen under his plan until you have declining numbers for 14 days, which those states and my state do not have. Uh, so then to encourage people to go protest the plan that you just made recommendations on on Thursday, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense indeed. Despite all this, as CNN's Nick Watt reports, some states are now beginning to scale back restrictions. There are protests against stay-home orders now spreading, fanned perhaps by the president. There is some relaxation some places. South Carolina expected to open stores and beaches Tuesday, which were open all weekend in Jacksonville, Florida, with social distancing rules flagrantly flouted. I think that decision was reckless. It shows you how undisciplined the leadership of this country has been because we do not have a consistent message. And there are still hotspots, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, while our leaders struggle to balance the pain of the virus. I had the sense that I was drowning at certain points. I was unable to even stand. With the pain of the shutdown. It may be a year or more before a vaccine or medicine frees us from periodically returning to safer at home. But let me be clear, we cannot stay indoors for six or seven months without risking an even greater economic catastrophe. 
One influential model suggests just these four states can safely open first on May 4th, still two weeks from today. What we are reporting is a level that a state can comfortably move to a containment stage. That level is one new case per day per one million people. So, for example, New York State would need fewer than 20 cases per day. Right now, they're still seeing more than 5,000. All large events in the city, concerts, parades, were just cancelled through June. You don't need protests to convince anyone in this country that we have to get back to work and we have to get the economy going and we have to get out of our homes. Nobody. The question is going to become how, when, how fast. Apparently at one new case per million per day, a state will have the capacity to care for that patient and also trace and test their contacts. In the US, we're testing around 150,000 people a day. Harvard researchers say that must more than triple to over 500,000 a day for us to reopen right. Social distancing has been an effective tool so far. It's been a blunt tool, uh, but we need to take a little bit more surgical approach if we are to think about uh, uh, returning back to normal. Bottom line. But unless we get the virus under control, the real recovery economically is not going to happen. And today, a shout out from Governor Cuomo of New York for the disproportionately black and brown Americans who are out there working right now, the essential workers. As Cuomo said, while most of us are staying home dealing with cabin fever, they are out there dealing with the virus. This is health workers, but also grocery store workers, other essential workers. Cuomo says they deserve more money. They deserve hazard pay. He said, why not a 50 percent bonus? Jake. Yeah, black and brown Americans being hit disproportionately hard by the coronavirus, according to medical yeah. stats. Nick Watt in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Joining me now to discuss CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, you heard Dr. Fauci warning that the economy cannot mm. come back until the virus is much more under control. Uh, and yet we're seeing Jacksonville opening beaches Friday in South Carolina. Some retail stores are expected to reopen. The virus is in a downslope in the U.S., but do you think these measures are, you know, lifting these restrictions is premature? I think so, Jake. I mean, look, the one constant in all this is the virus. The virus is still out there. It is still very contagious. And Jake, I remember talking about some of these models uh, with you and all these models have been, you know, all over the place. But we looked at models that predicted that uh, sadly some 60,000 people would die by August 4th. That was what one of the models from University of Washington showed. That was one of the ones that was being touted, uh, obviously, at the White House. What, what are we now? Uh, it's April 20th, and we're at, I, say, I think, some 40,000 people have died. I mean, April 20th, that was August 4th, 60,000 people. My, my point is, and, and again, I get no joy at all in talking about this this way, but we're, we're way ahead now, now, according to some of these models. It, the numbers nearly doubled in terms of these tragic deaths since last week, and now we're thinking about reopening. I mean, the, the, the data speaks for itself. We, we have to follow the data, the evidence. It's, it's not 
uh, it's it's tough, I think, all around, but I think it speaks for itself. And now we're starting to get some some more specific numbers from Dr. Fauci and others in terms of what kind of testing is needed. We've always said more testing, but what does that mean? It was important to define that, and we're starting to get definition of that. We do about 150,000 tests a day, roughly, a lot better than we were before. But uh, in order to just test the people that really need to be tested, the healthcare workers and frontline workers that Nick Watt was just talking about, obviously people who have some sort of symptoms, you would require three times that, close to 500,000 tests a day, uh, you know, Jake. So we're, we're, yeah. we're not there yet. It's not clear that we have that capacity yet, or the swabs, or the reagents, or whatever it takes. So uh, reopening is premature, I think. And I've heard from governors that the swabs, the reagents, the other things that are necessary to have, along with the testing kits, are also in short supply. And you're talking about how their Har Harvard is suggesting it needs to be about three and a half million tests done, conducted every week. Right now, we're at about one and a half million. So we've got a lot of ways to go. Governor Cuomo saying today that hospitals across the state of New York are expected to deliver results from hydroxychloroquine tests to the FDA and the CDC. This is, of course, the drug uh, that some have hopes for uh, as a treatment, not a vaccine, but a treatment, but it also has tremendous side effects. President Trump often talks about the drug as a possible treatment. Do we have a preliminary read on these test results yet? Uh, we don't. All, all we know from this specific uh, results were that they were sent to the Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA, and we should get those results, uh, Jake. I mean, you know, these, these are government-funded studies. Some 10,000 doses of the medication went to New York. That doesn't mean 10,000 patients because uh, oftentimes it's given twice a day for several days. But nevertheless, we should get these results. I will tell you that, uh, you know, it's still early. I mean, whether the results show no effect, significant side effects, or some effect, these are all early studies. I can tell you we're starting to get a trickle of information from Sweden, where the guidance is don't give this medication outside of clinical trials anymore. From France, where some of the earliest studies were done now show toxic side effects at higher doses. And Brazil, where they've also recommended not to use this medication outside of trials. So I... I whether it's good or bad in terms of what we see, we need the data still. I mean, I, I just like you, Jake, right. I think just like everybody wants to see a therapeutic work, but I don't want people to be hurt and I don't want people to have false hope. We need to see the data on this. That data is, is something that we deserve to see as soon as I'm sure the FDA or HHS analyze it, we'll, we'll get a better look. <clears throat> The virus is not just affecting the respiratory system in patients, the, the, their ability to breathe and the scarring on their lungs, et cetera. There's now evidence, you say, of neurologic and cardiac impairment as well, problems with their hearts. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, the, the idea that a respiratory virus would primarily affect the lungs is a good, good assumption, but I think pretty early on, uh, doctors started to see other organ systems affected. First, they thought, well, the lungs are not, is not oxygenating the blood, therefore, uh, other organ systems are getting injured by the lack of oxygenated blood. But now it seems like something else is going on. Take a look at the list of, of various symptoms that we see with uh, the central nervous system and also the cardiac system. One of the things that we saw early on with the, with the heart was people were having symptoms that uh, uh, seemed like uh, maybe they were having a, a concurrent heart attack or something, but it was unclear whether uh, there was also so much inflammation causing these problems. The top of that list, uh, Jake, is blood clotting. 
Typically, blood clotting would be a good thing in somebody who is having bleeding, for example, obviously. But in some cases, blood clotting can also be an evidence of a pretty significant illness, a precursor to shock, septic shock in the body. Also, with regard to neurological symptoms, you'll remember, Jake, people at times would complain of something like loss of smell. It would be the only symptom they would have. And, and at first, it was just sort of an oddity. But then they realized that it was and sometimes the first symptom of this COVID illness, along with things like dizziness and headache and seizures even. There's something else going on here, Jake. I, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people mm-hmm. even over the weekend, people who are studying this. Is there something that this virus is specifically doing to the blood? making the blood less able to carry oxygen? Is it causing widespread inflammation that's affecting all these organ systems? There's something else going on that probably explains why younger and healthier people are also affected in ways that are surprising. But we need to figure that out. President Trump is also saying that he wants to send investigators to China uh, over the various issues, including transparency. Um, The Chinese government obviously has hid a lot of information from its own people as well as the world. You uh, spoke with the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, about this as, as far back as February. What did Redfield have to say back then? Yeah, even then, this was middle of February, and I and I was curious because we heard this, all the cases uh, of people who had this infection were exposed to this wet market initially, that it was all from animals to humans, and then I started reading journal articles that suggested that wasn't the case. The first patient had no contact with the wet market. In fact, a third of the original patients had no contact with this market. So I wanted to understand what did we know and when, and I asked Dr. Robert Redfield about that again mid-February. Take a listen. Do you, as head of the CDC, trust the information coming out of China? This outbreak did start earlier, and it did have evidence of human-to-human transmission earlier than uh, our Chinese colleagues at least publicly appreciated, or even in the discussions that I had with my counterpart. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's above the medical. You think it's a political decision? I think it's above the medical. I don't think the director of CDC is making that decision. You think it's a political decision? Well, I think it's, all I can say is I think it's above the director of CDC because I know he would love to have us a system. Uh, Jake, if you, if you listen closely there, he says not only publicly was this information not being transmitted, but even, you know, under these, these sort of closed transmissions between the CDC Dr. Robert Redfield wasn't being told this either. So there was a real lack of transparency on some of the core issues here, Jake. Yeah, the Chinese government uh, keeping this information from the CDC and from their own people. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to listen to Sanjay's daily podcast. It's a must listen. Coronavirus fact versus fiction on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access podcasts. Polls show a majority of Americans support a slow responsible return to work. So what is driving this small but very visible and very vocal minority to these protests around the country? Then, a source telling CNN how a mistake in one lab slowed the U.S. response to the coronavirus by weeks with serious repercussions. That's ahead. Dozens of protesters across the country ignoring orders to physically and social distance and stay at home and demanding that their governors lift quarantines put there to protect them. They want to go back to work, they say. In some cases, it's deep-seated conservative groups that are orchestrating the demonstrations. A majority of the American people oppose the measures these people are protesting for. 
CNN's Jeff Zeleny is covering some of the groups behind the protests. CNN's Miguel Marquez is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where we saw some crowds. Uh, Miguel, let me start with you. We, we've heard protesters say they understand the health risks. I have to say, looking at the protests, it doesn't seem like they understand the health risks. Yeah, we are on the steps to the very place where that protest was happening today. I want to show you it's pretty much cleared out uh, at this point, but it was... You know, people were were right next to each other, many of them, many, many of them not wearing masks at all, uh, ignoring sort of the social distancing guidelines from the president himself. All of this taking on sort of a feeling of a Trump campaign rally, a, a protest against the quarantine rules, a religious revival, and even a, a pretty large uh, segment of uh, Second Amendment rights individuals. So it was a lot of different voices. and. For many of them, the coronavirus, the pandemic, they just feel that it's politics at its worst and uh, that, that it's Democrats essentially trying a coup by pandemic. Jake? Yeah, that's obviously insane. Uh, Jeff, what do we know about uh, who's organizing some of these rallies? Uh, there's obviously, everyone wants things to go back to normal. Everyone wants to go back to work right. when it's safe to do so. But these people seem to want to go back to work even before it is safe to do so. Well, Jake, there's no question that there's a loose organization behind all of these. I was at one of those protests last week in Michigan. They got so much attention, it inspired other protests like the ones we're seeing over the weekend and into this week here. And the one in Michigan was organized by the Michigan Conservative uh, Coalition, you know, a loose group of uh, of uh, like-minded individuals who organized the uh, Tea Party rally more than a decade ago. So that is what we are seeing here. This, uh, you know, the if not the same people, in some cases it is, certainly the same uh, mindset across the country. You know, there is an organization of people who, you know, uh, certainly are in favor of limited government, and they are protesting this as an economic argument and saying that these closed businesses, you know, are hurting their bottom line. But Jake, the bottom line, actually, this is a political argument. This is an argument to a bolster the president's um, sort of a, a call to reopen the economy. But the irony in all of this, these very protesters, some of whom are holding Trump flags, are protesting the president's own guidelines. None of these states actually meet the qualifications what the White House laid out last week in terms of the uh, three-phased approach. So that's what's so odd here. These protesters are actually protesting the president, although they're not saying so. They're saying they're protesting the Democrats, so the Democratic governor there in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and it, even odder, President Trump encouraging protesters who are taking issue Indeed. with President Trump's own guidelines. Uh, Miguel, today, um, the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, says he respects the protesters. Uh, but he added that small business owners have told him they don't want to open right now if that means closing again in a few weeks. It's a delicate balance uh, for many of these governors, Democrats and Republicans. Very much so. And even voters out there. I mean, most Americans, Democrats or Republicans, think that it's better to err on the side of caution and keep things closed down for a bit longer than to go back to work. What protesters were saying here today is that May 1st, that was something that the president had, had floated early on. They want to see things opened up May 1st. During the protest, at the height of the protest, Governor Wolf here, which lots of their ire was focused on today, he extended the uh, stay-at-home orders till May 8th. So that is likely uh, not to be uh, well-received with this crowd. Jake? All right, Jeff and Miguel, thank you so much. Coming up next, one major U.S. chain now returning millions of dollars it received from the stimulus bill. We'll explain why next. 
Another day with vastly mixed messages coming from the Trump administration to governors. While members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, including the vice president, told governors on a call today that the federal government will help states ramp up coronavirus testing. That is a direct contrast from President Trump, who this morning on Twitter blamed the states for not working fast enough to do testing on their own, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. As multiple governors voice concerns about a shortage of coronavirus tests and the supplies needed to conduct them. So this is the swamp. President Trump is claiming they're wrong. Today on Twitter, he compared the demands to when governors asked for more ventilators. They screamed it loud and clear and thought they had us cold, even though it was the state's task. Now they scream testing, 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 again playing a very dangerous political game. But governors say a lack of supplies for testing is one of the biggest hurdles they're facing. And the president is wrong that there are enough tests to open back up. Jake, that's just delusional to be making statements like that. We don't even have enough swabs, believe it or not. Trump has dismissed those complaints as Democrats playing politics and not doing enough to ramp up testing on their own. Republicans like Larry Hogan of Maryland say that's, quote, absolutely false. Every governor in America has been pushing uh, and fighting and clawing to get more tests, not only from the federal government, but from every private lab in America and from all across the world. And how about a round of applause for The vice president says the U.S. is conducting about 150,000 tests per day, but researchers at Harvard estimate that number needs to be tripled to safely reopen. During a call with the nation's governors today, Pence and Dr. Deborah Burks stressed that a partnership between the federal government and states is needed. We just completed a very... Uh, productive meeting of uh, members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, with governors all across the country. Trump, who did not join the call, is offering a very different message. Testing is, is local. You can't have it both ways. Testing is a local thing. The president is also still stoking protests against stay-at-home orders in states with Democratic governors. They want their life back. Their life was taken away from them. The string of protests is often organized by groups with conservative ties. Even though the protests contradict the president's own federal guidelines, one of his top aides is arguing it's the governors who have overreached. Some of these governors have physically distanced from common sense. In Michigan, you could basically smoke your grass but not cut your grass. This makes no sense to many people. Now, Jake, also yesterday, the president said he's going to use the Defense Production Act to get a U.S. company to make more swabs that are needed for that coronavirus testing. I spoke with Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, who's been coordinating all the uses of the DPA here at the White House. Today, he said they are finalizing negotiations with Puritan, this company in Maine, to make more swabs. But basically, they're using the DPA to give this company more money. That's what they're in talks to do. So then the company can increase its industrial capacity and then make more swabs. Though we should note this contract has not been awarded yet. Would have been nice to award it maybe two months ago. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says Senate negotiations will pick up tomorrow over emergency loans for small businesses. Sources tell CNN that talks are focused on how to provide money for hospitals and community health centers, as well as how to spend money to ensure coronavirus testing is carried out on a much wider scale. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley to talk about this and more. Julia, these loans, we've been talking about them for a month now. They're intended for small businesses. So do we know how big name restaurant chains like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, Potbelly, Shake Shack, which is now giving back their loan, how did they manage to get the money to begin with? 
We do know, and I know it feels wrong, two things important to focus on. One, they had strong banking relationships and therefore they got in early. Two, the rules stipulate that businesses with less than 500 employees can apply. However, the rules also say that if you have 500 employees or more dotted around the country, collectively clearly far more than that, you can still apply. So these businesses did nothing wrong, but plenty of people stepped up and said this feels immoral, particularly when companies like these can get money from other sources and plenty, millions of small businesses have no other options. Right, and that's what Shake Shack said ultimately, that they can get money from other means. They don't right. need this, these loans from the government. Um, Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida today uh, came out blasting the loan prog prog uh, program, saying that millions of dollars in it are being wasted, going to the wrong people, not going to small businesses. Do you agree? And what changes does he suggest? Some of that, I think, is fair. The point about getting money to the smallest businesses in the country is very valid. Some is not. Remember, 90% of this country more is in shutdown. Businesses, companies of all sizes are going to be impacted. So we have to remember that. I'll keep coming back to the idea that if you add conditions to individual loans, you will slow an already very slow process down. However, when a quarter of the cash goes to 2% of businesses, we have a problem, Jake, and that's what we saw. So I think Congress deciding to segregate some of this cash, making it only available to the smallest lenders, the online lenders, and getting that money to small businesses is crucial. We can make this system fairer, I think, without making it slower. And let me ask you about making it fairer, because somebody reached out to me, a small business owner. He said he, he can't get a loan uh, because he was once convicted of a felony uh, within the last five years. Uh, and for that reason, he wasn't eligible for one. You looked into this rule today. Why is this rule there? I mean, if somebody's paid their debt to society, why can't they get a small business loan? Accidental. I've spoken to a number of lawyers and they said this was a tripwire created at this, because of the speed that this program was built. What officials did was they copied an existing lending program at the Small Business Administration and they copied all the restrictions too. This restriction against former felons was just one of them. Other restrictions included uh, venture capital-backed small businesses. You imagine how hard the lobbyists worked to try and break that one and failed. The fear is that only Congress can act here and the likelihood is they won't. It's awful for people who've served their time trying to reform their lives and get on with things and can't get access to this program. Um, quickly, oil prices dropped to a record low between zero to negative $37 a barrel. Is this because of the pandemic? It is because we're not driving, we're not flying as much. There's very little demand out there, but it's also a supply issue. There is still too much supply out there. And now the fear is that particularly in the United States, there's nowhere to store it, Jake. What we're talking about when we're seeing negative prices is oil producers having to pay buyers to take oil off their hands. It's critical for the jobs in this industry. And, and that's my big fear now, help required. All right, Julia Chatterley, thank you so much. As always, I'll see you tomorrow. Valuable time lost. New CNN reporting on how failures crippled the U.S. early response to the coronavirus. Stay with us. CNN has learned exactly why the United States was weeks behind in coronavirus diagnostic testing. With the clock ticking, 
lives on the line. In the early days of confronting this invisible enemy, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention screwed up. The CDC lab producing the test kits was contaminated, according to a senior administration official. CNN's Sarah Murray is part of the team that combed through documents from public records requests, internal records from a private testing facility, as well as interviewing current and former government officials to find out exactly what went wrong with the testing. The early U.S. response to the coronavirus crisis was crippled by the CDC's first flawed test. A flaw likely caused by contamination at a CDC lab in February, a senior administration official says. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. But in Washington, top health officials like CDC Director Robert Redfield and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar were assuring the White House the situation was under control. We're testing uh, everybody that we need to test. And we're finding very little problem, very little problem. In fact, public health labs couldn't get the test to work. And it would take roughly three weeks in February to get to the bottom of the problem and devise a fix. Precious time squandered as the virus spread across the country, largely undetected. It is a failing. I mean, let's admit it. A CNN investigation found overly optimistic healthcare officials, a contaminated CDC lab, government red tape, and a president who downplayed the coronavirus. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. All contributed to the delay in scaling up testing, a shortage that still persists despite claims from the White House. We have tremendous testing capacity. In mid-February, the Food and Drug Administration was getting mixed messages from the CDC about why its test was malfunctioning. A diagnostics expert from the FDA traveled to Atlanta to visit the CDC lab and found the lab was contaminated, most likely causing the problem with the tests, an administration official said. An FDA spokesperson said CDC did not manufacture its tests consistent with its own protocol. A CDC spokesperson said the issue is under investigation and routine quality control measures were not sufficient in this circumstance. No doubt that early on we had a problem. States were allowed to use a workaround to deploy the existing test kits that had been malfunctioning. New kits were also shipped with the help of an outside manufacturer. <laughs> Meantime, there was no coordinated strategy from the White House to ramp up alternatives. It wasn't until February 29th that the FDA loosened regulations to make it easier for clinical and commercial labs to develop their own tests. I can tell you, having lived through the last eight weeks, I would have loved the private sector to be fully engaged eight weeks ago. Even now, three months after the first reported coronavirus case in the U.S., the struggle continues. That lack of testing is preventing us from understanding the true spread of coronavirus in communities. Now, Jake, spokespeople at the CDC and HHS defended Secretary Azar as well as Robert Redfield. But the bottom line remains the U.S. got a painfully slow start to testing. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. We're joined now by Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's the chief of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Walensky, thanks so much for joining us. We knew there were problems with testing from the beginning, but now we learn it took the CDC about three weeks to sort out these failed test kits. What's the real world impact that you and other doctors and hospitals saw on the front lines? Good afternoon, Jake. The first thing I want to just mention is that these tests, these tests are PCR tests, and they're designed to find very little virus. They want to be able to detect very little virus if you have it so that they can say they, they found it, even if you only had a very little bit. And when those uh, tests are designed, um, their biggest uh, challenge is that they can get contaminated. And so when we get false positive results, it's usually due to contamination. So this is actually not that much of a surprise from the scientific community that a PCR 
PCR test would have challenges associated with contamination. Now, what about um, how this impacted, uh, you know, what happened in the country? And what I will say is when we think about pandemics, we think about a containment phase. That containment phase involves finding every last person who has the disease, finding the, every last person with whom they had contact, and quarantining them. So isolating the people who we knew had disease and quarantining all of those contacts. That is how we contain a pandemic. Um, when you can't do that because, in fact, you didn't couldn't find them, you couldn't detect them because you didn't have a test, then we go into mitigation phase, and that is how other ways that we can stop viral spread. That is... Uh, uh, stopping travel, washing our hands, um, stay-at-home orders, all of those other ways that we can stop viral spread. So when we have to think about going back from mitigation back to containment, that's really why we need so many tests, because to get back to containment, we need to find every last person with disease and their contacts. Yeah, we weren't even doing anything remotely resembling that. Cruise ships would come in and there would be somebody with coronavirus on the cruise ship and everybody would be left off, let off. Nobody would be tested. They would drive back to Ohio or Michigan or wherever, and the disease was spreading. This, this failure of the testing um, was a combination of this contaminated lab, red tape that denied many sick people, sick people access to tests, and, of course, not having an agreement of support between public and private labs. I guess the bigger question, looking back, was this avoidable? Well, you know... We do know other cases where massive testing happened. So if you take a country like South Korea, they were doing hundreds of thousands of tests um, before we were really scaled up to test. So, you know, I don't necessarily, I think hindsight's twenty twenty here, but I do know that it's, it's um, there have been other examples of other countries, South Korea, Germany, that have been able to, to remain in containment phase because they had, they had adequate testing. A new study from Harvard uh, found that the U.S. needs to triple or quadruple its daily testing before the country can really seriously, responsibly begin to reopen again. Uh, up to like 4.5 million tests a, a week. We're at about 1.5 million. Uh, how badly did these early missteps set the U.S. back when it comes to the kind of widespread testing needed? Well, I think um, right now we are in a mitigation phase and everybody wants to sort of move backward to containment. So what does it take to move backward to containment? A huge volume of tests. We know we're already behind there. So what does it take to scale up? This Harvard study is one of numerous studies that have looked at how many tests do we need to actually do. I've seen estimates everywhere from four and a half million a week to 10 million a week. We can generally tell how we're doing with testing based on how many tests um, turn positive when we test. In Massachusetts now, we're testing only high-risk symptomatic patients and patients who come into the hospital. About 25% of people who um, are tested in Massachusetts are have COVID disease. So that's like one in four, one in five. You look at a case like South Korea, that's um, 3% of their people have a test, three, have a positive test, three in 100, which means they're testing a huge volume of people that are much lower risk. So I think it's about right. We need to triple, maybe increase tenfold the number of tests that we're doing in order to get back from mitigation to containment. You're the chief of infectious diseases at Mass General. You're in a state with a Republican governor, Charlie Baker, who takes this very seriously and has set in place uh, strict guidelines. What goes through your brain when you see governors in places like South Carolina or Florida or, or other places where they are beginning to talk about or they're actually enacting opening up beaches as they're doing in Jacksonville. What, what goes through your mind as an infectious disease expert? 
Um, I just worry. You know, I see what we're dealing with in the hospital right now, and um, we are at really maximum capacity. My heart has gone out to, to the healthcare workers in, in New York and the families in New York, and I just worry that um, the medical care in those areas will not have the capacity that they need. And we're talking, we're talking beds, we're talking ventilators, we're talking dialysis, um, we're talking manpower um, to, to handle what may be coming their way um, because they haven't taken this seriously. I hope, obviously, I hope you're wrong, but I can Me understand too. why you're Me concerned too. and worried. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, thank you so much for your expertise. We really appreciate it. Uh, good luck to you and your family, of course. Uh, breaking news, one state may soon open up gyms, barbershops, even rest restaurants. The new details next. Breaking news, a stunning move from Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp announcing that his state will allow some businesses, including gyms and salons, to reopen this week. This comes as Georgia has 733 deaths from coronavirus and nearly 19,000 confirmed cases. CNN's Amara Walker uh, joins me now to discuss. Amara, what businesses can open and when? Yeah, so here are the details. And yes, like you said, it really is an extraordinary move by Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. So what he is doing is he's lifting the order and now allowing the incremental opening of some business. And this is statewide. Um, so as early as this Friday, in a few days from now, you can start seeing in Georgia some businesses, indoor facilities like barbershops and hair salons, nail salons, gyms, all kinds of fitness centers, bowling alleys, uh, massage therapists, uh, these people going back to work. Again, it'll be up to uh, the businesses whether or not they will reopen, but they will not be restricted under these shelter-in-place orders that were supposed to remain in, uh, in effect until the end of April. Now, as early as Monday, we can also start seeing theaters and restaurants reopening. But the governor did say that some of these restaurants, if they do want to reopen, they will have to meet certain guidelines before they do. And he said, Governor Kemp, that he will be releasing the details on what uh, restrictions that they will have to meet before these restaurants can reopen. We do want to reiterate, though, bars, nightclubs will remain closed. But again, an extraordinary move by the Georgia governor to reopen the economy of Georgia. Jake. All right, Emeril, Emeril Walker, thank you so much. And our world lead, uh, the French government saying the country has passed the peak of the pandemic, but the French prime minister says France will not return to normal for quite some time until there is a vaccine or treatment. Turkey now has over 90,000 confirmed cases, surpassing the total reported by the Chinese government. Though, of course, as always, we should know questions remain over the transparency and honesty of anything coming from President Xi's government. In Bangladesh, 100,000 people defying lockdown orders to attend the funeral of an Islamist political leader, sparking fears of a mass coronavirus outbreak there. The number of active cases in Italy is down for the first time since the pandemic started, and now Italy is starting to look towards possibly reopening. And antibody testing could be critical to prevent a second wave of cases, but there are questions over just how reliable these antibody tests really are. CNN's Ben Wiedemann took the test himself to learn more. Just three drops of blood are enough for a Chinese-made antibody test for the coronavirus now going through a trial run in Italy, just one of several tests being examined by the Italian government. 
Other countries have had mixed success with such quickly designed tests, but we gave it a try. We were up in the north of Italy in the red zones for 17 days. So we are very anxious to see the results of this test. Unlike swabs, this test gives results in just eight minutes. The results, says Dr. Gian Dominique Bossone, can tell us three things. Either you never had anything, or that you are currently infected, or that you had the infection but overcame it and have antibodies that are no longer contagious. I received a clean bill of health. Tutto posto, uh, negative. Negative. And never had it? No, no, mai avuto, never had it. Alfredo, who drove us all over northern Italy for two weeks, also negative. CNN Rome's veteran cameraman, Alessandro Gentile, however, had a different result. Positive, says Dr. Bossoni. He had the virus in the past and has brilliantly overcome it. Alessandro never had any symptoms. But our bodies can't take time to produce antibodies, so experts caution that these tests may miss some recent current infections, unlike the more common swab tests, which should be able to detect whenever someone is shedding the virus. Antibody tests like the one I got, quick, painless and inexpensive, just around $20, can show who's already been infected with COVID-19 and may now be immune to the virus. A critical step as Italy shifts into phase two, the phase when the country reopens. And that uh, phase begins on the 4th of May, in theory, unless the government changes its mind. And they still haven't actually decided which test, one of these Chinese tests or a locally developed test, will be adopted for mass use in the Italian population. Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Germany is slowly starting to get back to some semblance of normalcy with stores opening back up to the public. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is in Berlin. Uh, Fred, I know the Chancellor, Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, dealt with the virus very aggressively very early. Is there any concern that reopening Germany too soon could lead to a second wave? Mm. Yeah, there, there certainly is, and there certainly is on the part of Angela Merkel. And you're absolutely right, uh, Jake. She always has been one to move fairly slowly as far as loosening some of these restrictions. Always had all of that rooted in science as well. And the other thing that she's also done, she's also been in lockstep with state governors here in this country to make sure that everybody moves forward at the same pace. Now, Angela Merkel today said, look... The fact that Germany has been able to loosen some of these restrictions is due to the discipline of many people in Germany who really adhere to all these physical distancing measures. Now some smaller shops were able to reopen, and she said people really need to watch out, not be complacent, because if there is another spike in corona cases, 
all these new freedoms will go away again, and certainly there would be other restrictions as well. Now, Jake, today I was actually in one German town, and you could see more people out in the streets, still sort of physically distancing, but it does seem as though some people might be a little lax with some of these measures, and they could be, and certainly Angela Merkel says it's a point of concern for her, Jake. All right, Fred Pletkin in Berlin, thank you so much. The White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing starts in just a few minutes. Our coverage on CNN continue, continues right now. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay at home. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.